Hello again, it's your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley, back for another episode of the History Comics Podcast, this time with part one of the life of Thomas Nast, the inventor of the modern political cartoon. Cartoons and comic strips have long been used to satirize public figures while attempting to convey a message. It is probably one of the first uh, uses of the sequential art, from cave paintings to tapestries doing just that. However, the art of political cartooning truly came into its own during the mid-1800s, with one artist in particular innovating into a true art form. His name was Thomas Nast, who not only set the standard for modern political cartoons we know today, but also made a lasting impact on popular culture in general, creating the symbols for the, the modern Republican and Democratic parties, along with the modern version of Santa Claus. He was truly an artist like no other, and like many uh, before him, came from very humble beginnings. Thomas Nast was born on September 26, 1840 at the military barracks in Landau, near Ostis in the Bavaria, Germany, the youngest of four children. He had an older sister, Andy, and two other siblings who died shortly after childbirth, to uh, Joseph Thomas and Apollonia Nass. His father, Joseph, was a trombonist in the 9th Regiment Bavarian Band, but due to his political beliefs that were at odds with the Bavarian government at the time, Joseph Nash left Landau in 1846, first enlisting it onto a uh, French man of war ship, and then later an American one. His family would later move to New York City due to that, due that June, when Nash Thomas was just six years old, with his father later joining them in 1850 after his enlistment inspired. When he came to New York, Joseph Nash joined the Philharmonic Society and the band at the Barton's Theater thanks to his skills as a musician. As a child, Thomas Nash enjoyed New York City, especially the picture of a tiger on the side of a big six volunteer fire company, which would be headed by his future rival, Boss Tweed. From the start, Nash loved drawing and exhibited his talent with a picture of uh, Louis uh, Kosuf in 1851, the celebrated Hungarian revolutionary who received the greatest ovation in the city since Lafayette. This picture was praised by his teachers, who had it framed and hung in the, in the principal's office at his school. This would be the extent of Nash's schooling, as outside of art, he had no interest in any other academic studies and was a poor student for the most part. His formal education would actually end at the age of 14. Strangely, Nash's family didn't want to encourage his art, wishing he instead would go into music like his father. Fortunately, Nash... Uh, persevered, studying under uh, Theodore Kaufman, a German painter of the historical scenes, along with furthering his studies at the museums and the Academy of Design. Nass would soon begin a career in character work at Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, later called Leslie's Weekly in 1856 at the age of 15, doing 16 pages weekly at 10 cents a page. Soon, Nass was earning $4 to $7 a, a week, while continuing his studies under Leach, Gilbert, and Tennell, the three famous character artists known as the Three Johns, who worked at the legendary Punch magazine. Tenno would be a major influence on Thomas Nass, as he would copy his line drawings up until 1869. At Leslie's, Nass had his first taste of using his art to influence politics, going after a corrupt milk producer who distributed polluted milk, known as swill milk. Nass and other Leslie artists were sent to the barns to document the conditions of diseased cows being milked in filthy barns, which led to death threats to the editor by the dairyman. After a bitter campaign, Leslie's, with the help of Nash's art, was successful in changing conditions in the dairy industry. This would lead to Nash's next great job and the one that would define his career at Harper's Weekly. Harper's Weekly was founded by uh, Fletcher Harper as part of the larger Harper's and Brothers publishing empire. 
Nasty's first piece appeared in the magazine on March 19, 1859, and he would eventually join the magazine full-time in 1862. Till then, Nast provided one of the sheet assignments attacking scandals in police department while also working at the Sunday Courier, which he continued to use his art to attack corrupt government, this time on New York gambling houses. Nast had found his calling, using his art to satirize and attack political corruption, which would be the foundation for much of his work. Nass would later go to the New York Illustrated News at $40 a week, where he co- covered the funeral of John Brown, the revolutionary abolitionist who attempted to start an anti-slavery war in the South. In addition, Nass did another series attacking corruption and vice, this time in New York City tenements. Nass's work was so well received at this point that in 1860, Nass covered the prize boxing match in London, England, between John Heenan and, the blacks, and a blacksmith from Benicia, California, and Thomas Sayers, the current English champion, said to wear a belt worth over 100 pounds. While the fight was looked down upon in much of England to the point that Heenan had to move his training camp three times to avoid arrest, the ultimate fight would become so popular due to the attention of Charles Dickens, who reportedly bet on the fight, and William Thackeray, who is said to be in the audience. Even the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, weighed in deploring the whole affair, but stated if the fight had to happen, he hoped the English champion would win. The fight did occur, and by the 42nd round, rules for boxing were a bit looser back then, the police broke it up, as Heenan outweighed Sayers by with him being 210 pounds to Sayers 156. As mentioned, rules were a bit looser. Despite this, the fight was considered a draw, with each fighter being awarded the championship. The New York Illustrated News devoted an entire issue to the fight, with Nash's reporting and pictures declaring boxing an important part of the civilized world. Unfortunately, the paper was not generous with his pay, as Nass gained some fame for his story, but not much money. Afterwards, Nass went to Naples to cover the war, with his work appearing in the London Illustrated News and the New York Illustrated News. This evolved when, in early May, Claudio Amaro Car- Carabaldi had begun his campaign for his, the bid to liberation of his country with, a, with his attack by his famed thousand against the kingdom of, of the two Sicilies. Nass would join the second exhibition on June 9th, following it from Genoa to Sicily. He would stay with them for four months, covering the capture of Naples, Garbali's campaign, and Garbali's campaign would eventually annex the southern Italy and Sicily, leading to the unification of the country into the modern Italy that we know today, with Garibaldi considered one of its founding fathers. Taking the opportunity of being in Italy, Nass then spent another two months studying the art galleries in the Colosseum of Rome, along with making stops in Florence, Milan, and Genoa. Nass would even stop off in Germany in Bavaria town of Landu, his birthplace, before finally returning to London in January. His work was so successful that London Illustrated News even offered him a permanent post, but only at $10 a week. It didn't get much better when he returned to New York on February 1st, as the New York Illustrated News there was in such dire financial straits, they weren't able to give him a full salary. The paper did publish his work and further spread his fame, which would pay off later. Nass decided to return to the United States for other reasons as well, as he was about to get married. Back in the U.S., Thomas Nass covered the inauguration of President Abraham Lincoln on February 19th, while also making a printing in the New York 7th Regiment marching down the Broadway on April 9th of 1861. This would become part of Nass's long lifelong theme of defending the Union of the United States. On the personal side, Nass married Sarah Edwards after a two-year courtship, with his wife inspiring his literary interests, specifically in Shakespeare, which he would later incorporate into his cartoons. Now with a wife to support, Nass returned to Leslie's, now making $50 a week, but later had to have it reduced to $30.
This would lead him to work at Harper's Weekly in 1862, as with a circulation of 100000 it could afford giving Nass a higher salary, along with providing a better showcase for his art. Ironically, the Civil War was probably what helped Nass get his job at Harper's to begin with, as the need for pictures of the war was so high, even Union officers with artistic talent were pressed into service. Thomas Nass's political cartoons were fully in favor of the Union during the American Civil War, to the point that President Abraham Lincoln called Nass the Union's best recruiting sergeant. His first drawing was a gallant color bearer on September 20, 1862, and would continue to attack the Confederacy with his four, first 14 drawings. Nass would even have Santa Claus, for which he was uh, crafted the modern look for, recruit for the Union with his art. In 1863, Nass produced the 32 more drawings attacking the Confederacy as he absolutely loathed it. One drawing in particular, The War in the Border States, shows the impact of a Union's death on his soldier's death on his family. While this made him popular in the North, it made Nass equally unpopular in the South, with him receiving numerous death threats while others compared, commented if the Confederacy ever commented him, Nass would be burned at the stake. However, he would go to the front just once that year, where he went to Fort Moultrie to meet General Ben Butler. Nass hated the Confederacy so much he was even against appeasement, attacking it with his compromise with the South, probably his greatest cartoon, on September 3rd of that year, while also later contributing to the Chicago platform. Nass would also help get Lincoln re-elected in 1864 with five of his drawings. With Lincoln re-election, along with his continued success of General Grant and Sherman's campaigns, Nass celebrated with on New Year's Day, 1865, with a picture contrasting a happy North with a desolate South. Ultimately, Nass produced 60 drawings for Harper's Weekly over a four-year period. In 1868, General Grant said Nass did as much to preserve the Union and bring the war to an end. Harper's was also pleased with Nass's work, continually raising his salary, along with making him director of the bank and member of the Union League Club. Most extraordinary, he was only 24 by the end of the war and already at the peak of his career. After the war's end, Nass's hatred of the Confederacy didn't let up, with his drawings now advocating for the former Confederate states to be punished, particularly after Lincoln's assassination. He particularly hated uh, President uh, Andrew Johnson for compromising with the South. Nass would also side with the Republicans like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, calling for enfranchisement of black Americans and former slaves. Thomas Nass's politics were mixed at the time with a hatred towards Catholics, despite originally being raised in the faith before converting to Protestantism, and Irish immigrants. However, he was also ardently opposed to slavery and racial segregation, along with the emergence of the KKK, which he attacked in his cartoon Worse Than Slavery, depicting a black family holding their dead child after a lynching while the KKK members shake hands in the background. In addition, he was also supportive of American Indian and Chinese American causes, which would play a part in his later cartoons. In 1865, Thomas Nass was making $100 a page for the front covers of Mrs. Grundy's magazine with a likeness of President Johnson, but soon had to device himself to just cartooning due to the increased demands of his art. Nass's art was so popular that the animals he used to symbolize political figures and parties had become commonplace. For his time, he used the tiger to symbolize Temley Hall, the infamous political operation run by Boss Tweed, who virtually ran New York City. Showing his hatred for the Democrats, he picked a donkey as the symbol, while the Republicans, of whom he was one, chose the elephant. They have remained the symbols of the two political parties to this day. Thomas Nast also used photography for references with his art, and once he developed his artistic technique around this time, he left it unchanged for years afterwards. In 
Naturally, his drawings based on photos were stiff, but eventually went away as Nast improved his technique. He was helped by, at Harper's by one of its owners, Fletcher Harper, who encouraged diverse viewpoints in his magazine, even the ones as radical as Nast's. This was in spite of uh, George William Curtis, the then editor of Harper's Weekly, believing the more subtle touch the stories. When General Grant chose to run for president, Thomas Nast actively campaigned for him with a backdrop of a Match Him portrait. And by 1868, Harper's offered him $150 for a double-page cartoon, five times his rate just a few years ago in 1862. Grant would later credit Nast with helping him get elected. In 1869, Thomas Nast realized line drawing was his real medium while beginning his new political campaign against boss trading Tammany Hall, who he blamed for the corruption in New York City. William Marcy Boss Tweed was the head of the infamous Tweed Ring, who ran New York City politics through his corruption. Tweed, at six feet and over 300 pounds, was a physical representation of political corruption at the time. Starting out as a chairmaker, he later moved on to bookkeeper, fireman, and then chief of the Big Six Fire Company, whose fire engine with his picture of a tiger on the side originally inspired Nash's art. In 1853, Tweed was elected to Congress and by 1860 was admitted to the bar and as a lawyer would remit his legal fees to city government in exchange for political favors. This gained Tweed recognition with local Democrats at Tammany Hall, their center of political operations, where he was made Grand Centrum in 1863 and by 1865 had full control of the organization. Soon he had his operatives placed throughout the city government, from Peter B. Sweeney as city chamberlain to Richard B. Connolly as comptroller, and most importantly, A. Oakley Hall as mayor of New York City. Tweed himself served as commissioner of public works. Together, they would swindle the city for millions through graft and overcharging on contracts, from a county courthouse being built for $12 million when it should have cost just three. Are doing things like plumbing that cost one point two one million two hundred fifty thousand, and one carpenter who charged three hundred sixty thousand for a month's work. In the end, Tweed and the Ring overbuilt the city two hundred million dollars over five years and controlled all the city elections. He became so powerful he would even taunt would-be reformers, pointing out that he counted the votes. So what could they do? Thomas Nast would lead the charge against the charter over corruption and graft in September, specifically going after Mayor Hall. This would be a daunting task as Tweed not only controlled most of the city government, with his marketing budget, he held over influence over 99, 89 different papers, 29 of which were completely dependent on Tweed's money. In September of 1869, Nast made his first of a series of cartoons attacking Tweed tied with his attempt to move up from local politics to trying to take control of the National Democratic Party. That's what tied corruption of the Democrat Party to Tammany Hall. While originally attacking all manner of corruption, Nass soon realized he needed to focus his attacks, and Tweed made the perfect target, along with Mayor Hall, whom Nass often depicted as, a, as with a broom, as it was his job to clean up after Tweed. Hall would feign innocence on the matter and even wrote to Nass personally, who in turn gave these letters to, the, to his editor as Hall was suing the Harper's Weekly for libel, which the paper used for their own defense. Nast even used one of Hall's catchphrases, it will all blow over consistently throughout his cartoons. Despite Nast's attacks with his cartoons, the Tweed Ring would sweep the 1870 elections, but they still noticed Nast was who continued to, to target Tweed with his cartoons, such as on January of 1871, with one of Tweed with his hand in the city's treasury while his $15,500 diamond stickpin is drawn so huge it's as big as his head. 
In response, Hall and Tweed attacked Harper's Wheatley, rejecting the magazine's bid to supply school books to the city schools, even going so far as destroying $50,000 worth already made. They would be replaced by those made by the New York Printing Company, which were of course owned by the Tweed Ring. This nearly caused Harper's to collapse, bringing about an emergency board meeting to decide what was the next course of action. They nearly caved to Tweed's demands until Fletcher Harper threatened to uh, leave the magazine in disgust, only to be called back. Now, more determined than ever, Nast in turn attacked this as well, along with the riot and the book corruption, such as a cartoon of Tweed knocking a Harper's textbook from a child's school desk and cuffing the student. In the background, a, a blackboard reads, Hoffman will be our next president, Sweet is an honest man, Tweeney is an angel, Hall is a friend of the poor. With economic pressure unable to stop Thomas Nash, Bosch Tweed next turned to, vo- to the law, having Mayor Hall accused Nash of publishing pictures that were vulgar and blasphemous in nature. However, Tweed would be his own worst enemy when he showed off his extravagant wealth at his oldest daughter's wedding. The gifts alone from Tweed's friends amounted to $700,000 in total, despite city officials only being able to have a total of $10,000 a year in salary. The source of this wealth became apparent after the death of the county auditor on March of 1871 from a sleighing accident, leading to bookkeeper uh, William Copeland being employed to take over. He soon discovered some ledgers that were hidden from him, which he acquired covertly, and he found in, de- in detail the extent of the graft the Tweed Ring had amassed. Copeland turned these books over to the sheriff, James O'Brien, who was in debt to Tweed to the tune of $12,000 and hoped to use them to clear his accounts. However, when Tweed refused the bargain, O'Brien then took the books to New York Times editor Louis uh, John Jennings, who soon began publishing his findings on J- July 8th of that year. Despite these stories, many of the Tweed papers attacked them with the editor Tribune, Greenlee, refusing to even acknowledge the fraud of the Tweed ring. This resulted in Nass creating a cartoon of Greenlee crying over a sick horse with Mayor Hall's face with a copy of the Tribune with the headline, You Lie! Everybody Lies Except H.G. Three days after the Times ran its story, the Tweed ring would suffer another blow when a riot broke out over a group of Protestants who wanted to hold a parade in the honor of the Battle of Boyne and the Orange Day celebration. The Irish Catholics, all Tammany men, threatened violence if the parade went on as scheduled, with Mayor Hall refusing to offer protection, ordering it not to proceed. The governor of New York intervened, reversing the decision, with the parade proceeding under a heavy military guard. Nevertheless, violence broke out anyway, with one policeman, one soldier, and 31 civilians being killed. This immediately brought backlash against the pro-Irish city government, with some even suggesting that the memorial be erected with a statement, murdered by the criminal man- mismanagement by Mayor A. Oakley Hall. Nast, who served in one of the military regiments called the Protective Parade, attacked Hall and the ring with the cartoon, Something That Will Not Blow Over, depicting savage fighting Irishmen with babbling faces, indicative of the bigotry of, of his bigotry towards them, he would uh, soon tune most of the attacks of Mayor Hall, who was busy suing the New York Times for libel. Tweed himself was so disturbed by the incident, he offered the publisher of the Times, George Jones, $5 million to quash the story, only for Jones to remark that not even the devil himself would pay so much, thus refusing the offer. Nass continued his attacks on the ring with the cartoon, Who Stole the People's Money?, depicting each member of the ring pointing to one another in accusation. Meanwhile, reform-minded politicians like Samuel J. Tilden were elected to the office in 1871, with Tilden becoming the new governor of New York, along with receiving the Democratic nomination for the President of the United States. 
Seeing the winds changing, the ring decided to put all the blame on the Comptroller Conley, who in turn went to Tilden with further evidence against Tweed in the ring, trying to save himself. All the while, Nash with his cartoons and the Harpers continued to mock them, and with a subscriber base of now 160,000, along with the actual readership of much more, it was starting to have an effect. Harpers would acknowledge this, even calling Nash the most hated man in New York on August of 1871, at least by the men whose friendship would be a dishonor. This would be accompanied a full page engraving of Nast and Harper's, with the editor proclaiming him the best characters of the day, and every stroke of his pencil cuts like a scimitar. Tweed would go so far as to threaten Nast with violence, claiming it would cost him his career and maybe even his life. When Nast continued, Tweed then went to bribery, offering uh, up to $500,000 for, for him to go on a European tour to study art, which would have then been uh, 100 times Nast's current salary at Harper's. Nass originally feigned interest driving up the offer from the original $100,000 before Nass turned it down, keeping up his attack. He would state, I made my line long ago to put them behind bars, and I was going to do just that. Tweed continued to be the primary target of Nash's attacks, and he successfully changed the character of the Sanctum of Tandemy, once viewed as a wealthy, generous philanthropist, to now being viewed as an overweight and greedy thief. This is while Mayor O.K. Hall was charged by the grand jury on October 19, 1871 for personal graft. Ultimately, the charges were dismissed, though it did rule that Hall was negligent in not examining 39,000 purchase warrants that were passed over his desk. Nass greeted this news with a cartoon, Our Mayor Still Lives, with Hall's face superimposed in the body of a sick horse. He would soon follow up with the cartoon next depicting John H. Kaisers, a poor but honest plumber who returned $650,000 in graft while Tweed shows his pockets empty, though Hall was quick to inspect him to make sure. Nass would follow this up with one of his most famous cartoons, The Tandemy Tiger Loose, What Are You Going to Do About It? Nass's work paid off in the 1871 election when Tweed lost his majority control in both houses of the New York City's legislature, with Senator Tweed being the only member of the ring being getting re-elected. Nass did enjoy at least pointing out in a cartoon Tweed's majority was only a third of what he expected. Nass followed that up with one of his best cartoons, something that did blow over November 7, 1871, mocking Mayor Hall's prediction of the success weeks earlier. Depicting the t- ring members in ruins in Tanami Hall, it highlighted Connolly pinned to, to the earth by an empty safe, Hall at the top clinging to the remains of the uh, wall, Tweed in the, in the center with efforts being made to revive him, and Sweeney fleeing the scene with a big bag marked brains. Sure enough, many of those in the cartoon saw the writing on the wall. Sweeney fled to Canada while Connolly was forced to resign, himself fleeing to Paris, when his life was threatened by uh, numerous unpaid workers. When Hall was replaced as mayor by A.H. Green, Nass proposed, produced another cartoon showing Hall sick in bed from taking too much of that green stuff. The biggest blow came when Tweed himself was arrested, with Nass producing the cartoon The Arrest of Boss Tweed, another good joke, though even Nass wasn't sure it was enough. He would follow up with another cartoon, Can, I, Can the Wall Reach Him, The Dwarf and the Giant Thief, as Nass has rightly pr- predicted Tweed would be, wouldn't be in jail long. However, the former Mayor Hall was indicted again when New York Governor Hoffman in 1872 attributed all of New York City's corruption to Tweed. Nass would mock the falling out with a cartoon parodying Julius Caesar as Tweed's old friends were now turning against him. It was truly over in 1872 when New York City had a new mayor and a board of aldermen, with Nass celebrating the Hall's fall from power with a cartoon showing the sick old mayor being dumped into the river. 
While Hall would ultimately be acquitted of all charges in 1973, he would never hold public office again, despite his protest of innocence to his dying day. Meanwhile, the Committee of 70 produced a new corruption-proof charter that was approved by the state legislature, though Governor Hoffman would veto it. That didn't help Tweed, who was brought to trial and despite spending $460,000 for his own defense, which included Elio Root, later became Secretary of the War and then State. Tweed had no allies to protect him now, and thus was convicted and sentenced to 12 years in Sing Sing Prison, though his cell was naturally finely furnished along with daily carriage rides through the city. He would take advantage of these, eventually escaping, fleeing to Cuba and then Spain, where in a final twist of knife, it was a nasty cartoon that allowed the Spanish authorities to identify him. Ironically, the Spanish police originally thought Tweed was a kidnapper, as the cartoon used to depict him as a giant holding two police in, in one hand. He was arrested and then returned to the United States, where he would still fight the charges, even offering a full confession of all of Tweed's Ring's crime in exchange for $20 million with the 20 million judgment against him being dismissed. Ultimately, Tweed died in prison in 1878, and through his confession, he did detail the breakdown in graft. As the contractors kicked back 65% of what they were paid, with Tweed getting 25% of that, Connolly 20%, Sweeney 15%, and Hall 5%. This would be the crowning achievement for Nast, who would uh, then use the Tweed corruption to attack Democrats as a whole, where the Tammany Tiger was repeatedly used as a symbol against them. While many other members of the ring would escape punishment, they would no longer rob the city, leading to an overall victory for Nast. It further demonstrated uh, Nast's power as a journalist, as he would be the first to effect such a, a political change without owning a paper himself. And with that, we will conclude this first part of the life of Thomas Nast, as, as we now off as a crowning achievement. But joining again next week, if Nast now continues to move on to national politics with the election of General Grant and so forth, along with his eventual downfall. Talk. Yeah, Thunder Talk. We're going all kinds of sideways with that sweet nerd junk. Woke nerd junk. It's topical. Political. Dare I say radical. We've got all your latest news and reviews. Hot music. And a whole lot of comedy. But it ain't for kids. Definitely mature content. So let's talk. Let's talk Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is a proud member of the ESO Network. Now it is August 31st, uh, 2023, time for my favorite comic book of the week. Marvel Age, number 1000, by various artists, which is basically a collection celebrating another milestone in the history of the Marvel Universe. With a lot of little great short stories, everywhere from uh, Spider-Man to Silver Surfer to the X-Men, telling just some uh, fun little tidbits about the Marvel Universe. A lot of good stuff in here, especially like the Ryan Stegman Spider-Man vs. the Lizard uh, story. And you always get points when you show Spider-Man with MJ, which is where he should be with. And, of course, the uh, X-Men the, it shows an early uh, romance of uh, Jean Grey and Cyclops developing, which is always a fun bit, too, by Rainbow Rowell. Yeah, there's all in all really good stuff. There's also a great story by Dan Slott during an early Captain Marvel adventure. And you also get to see uh, Carol Danvers before she became Miss Marvel herself. Yeah, overall, just a great collection of stories. The one that doesn't quite work is the... Uh, in story that features uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko as kids uh, imagining what the Marvel Universe is like. It's written by J. Michael Zygrinski. And 
the heart was in the right place for anyone who's done the his, who understands the history between those uh, three historical figures. Those they didn't get along that well, unfortunately, which is sad because yeah, they made some brilliant stuff together, but they kind of didn't end on the best terms. They wouldn't have been friends as kids. But outside of that, though, great read if you're a Marvel fan in general. Just go ahead and pick it up. And with that, we will conclude uh, this week's episode in the life of the brilliant political uh, cartoonist Thomas Nash. Go join me again next week for the concluding chapter. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself. A good comic book. <laughs>